sounds so good to hear you guys singing like that, man. It's just beautiful. Imagine, imagine heaven. You know what I mean? It's going to be awesome. Hey, um, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we've been going through the book of Corinthians, as you guys know, verse by verse, and we're kind of winding it down now. But last week, because it was Easter Sunday, chapter 15 is about as perfect a passage on the resurrection of Jesus as you can ever find. So we, we kind of did the first half of chapter 15 last week. Um, but we got to jump backwards just a touch and pick up on a little section. Um, Sam taught the first part of chapter 14 a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we skip the next part, and if I don't come back and pick it up, I will be labeled a coward. Now, I, I want you to understand, I am a coward. That's okay. Um, but I also have, we have the responsibility to address everything in the Word. Not everything in Scripture is a foundational thing that we pound on all the time. But as we go through the Word, when we come across things in the Scripture, we dare not skip them we dare not explain them away. We dare not ignore them. Because even if they're uncomfortable to us, even if they go against societal norms or any of those sorts of things, God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than ours. And so our desire is that we would seek God's will, God's word for us and, and allow his word to rule over us, not us ruling over his word. Amen for that? So that's our desire. So we're going to have fun this morning, and when I say that, I'm speaking so sarcastically, um, but that's all right. No, we're, we're, I hope we're going to have fun. We'll see. Um, and we're going to be in, starting in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so God, I even pray, Lord, right now that your spirit would just be upon me to teach your word. I pray, God, that you would, would protect, Lord, the hearers of your word from false interpretation, from misleading language, from cloudy thoughts, from, from anything that would take away from the truth of your word. We pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. We pray, God, that your spirit would prepare our hearts even now. We pray, God, that you would teach us and that you would be glorified in all things, Lord. So we just pray, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, let's just jump right in. It says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. This passage has been largely misunderstood and misappropriated to be a definitive statement on the elements that should make up our church gatherings. There are people who have taken this particular passage and said, okay, every time we get together as the church of Jesus Christ, this is what we need to make sure that we have. We need to make sure that there is a hymn, that there is a lesson, there is a revelation, there is a tongue, and there is an interpretation, and that is what makes up the church service. There are those in the more ultra-Pentecostal circles that would say that this is a prescriptive passage. But not every passage in the scriptures is prescriptive. Some of them are descriptive. And that's the case here. Paul is speaking into a Corinthian context that has a lot of different people speaking a lot of different things from a lot of different backgrounds into the service. And so he's describing, look, when you guys get together and you have this and this and this and this, he's really just describing what goes on. And we can say that with confidence because this would be a really incomplete church service if this is what Paul was prescribing for us to do. He leaves no room for communion, if that were the case, no room for baptism, no room for prayer. And so clearly that would not be Paul's intent for us as we gather together. He's speaking really a summary. This is his closing thoughts. We're about to really wind this book down. In fact, after we finish today, we'll finish chapter 14. The first half of 15 is already done. We've got essentially a chapter and a half to go, and the last chapter is actually particularly short. So we're winding down 1 Corinthians. And again, remember, this is a real letter written by a real person to a real church in time and in history. So Paul's really just concluding his argument, his thoughts to this church. That's why it starts out by saying, so what then, brothers? Or what's it all come down to, guys? What's the point of all of this? 
When you're doing this, when you have tongue, when you have interpretation, when you have him, whatever the case may be, he says, and this is the emphasis, let all things be done for building up. The idea is whatever is done within the church service, no matter what it is that takes place, the emphasis needs to be, or the end result of that thing needs to be the building up of the body of Christ. Not the individual, not even so much the organization, if you will, but the building up of the collective body of Christ in him. That's the goal. Not to make me as an individual feel good, not to make you as individuals feel good, but to help us collectively grow in Christ. That's the theme, important to our understanding of this passage. Everything done is to be done for the purpose of being built up in him. And so with that in mind, Paul now is going to go in here in this last little section of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, and he's going to give us a word about worship, he's going to give us a word about women, and then he's going to give us a word of warning. And that's really the outline of what Paul gives us here at the end. A word about worship, a word about women, and a word of warning. And so he starts out with this word of worship, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So he speaks again in context of what you guys studied when Sam taught this passage a few weeks ago. This idea of tongues and this idea of prophecies or what is often referred to as the more supernatural outworkings of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, Sam did a fantastic job breaking that passage down. I listened to it even just this week with him, and it was just, I was really encouraged by what he shared, and I would echo everything that he shared in that context, except that part about should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda, or whatever. I think that might be blasphemous, but that's okay. He's young. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be she rode in on a Honda, she rode in on a Honda, she rode in. But anyway. But anyway. So I don't, I don't want to go back and do any more work on defining what tongues are or defining what uh, prophecies are in that place. What I do want to say as way of remembrance before we move forward is understand there are those within the realm of Christianity that believe that those gifts, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, specifically of prophecy and of tongues, no longer have place in the church. But then there's others on the other end that believe that if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't speak in prophecy, then you aren't even saved. That those are evidence of the fact that you're saved. So we have two really far apart extremes, if you will, and then a massive spectrum of people in between them. Um, Also, please know that heritage, our official stance, if you will, when we teach the word of God, the interpretation we run this through is that we are a continuationist church. In other words, we believe that the gifts of tongue, the gifts of prophecy do still have application and continue in the world today. I mean, I believe even as the passage ends, it says in verse 39, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. It seems clear to me, but I want you to understand too, there are people that would disagree. And here's one thing we gotta keep in mind. We don't believe here at Heritage that this is an issue worthy of division over worthy of throwing arrows at one another, of attacking people who believe differently than us. Because remember, Paul's emphasis as he's speaking almost all of 1 Corinthians is to address divisions that have occurred in the church. And so if we were to take this and try to hammer home these things in such a way that we actually cause division amongst one another, we don't find that to be particularly fruitful. It's okay that people are wrong, we still love them. That's kind of our stance on those sorts of things. You guys were supposed to laugh at that. I was being sarcastic. Um, Just don't share that without the laugh because that'll get me in trouble. But that's kind of our goal. So we do believe that what God has put on our heart to teach, we're responsible to teach that. And so we emphasize that absolutely, but we don't divide from people who differ from us on these issues. 
And so that's kind of our stance there. So you'd say, okay, so Jeff, if you believe then that prophecy still exists in the church, if you believe then, Jeff, that the speaking of tongues still exists in the church, how come it is that we don't see that kind of stuff happen very much, if ever, here in the corporate context here at Heritage? Well, there's a good reason for that. And Paul addresses it in this passage. Much of the use of tongues, much of the use of prophecy, really all of it is given specific stipulations here in the passage. I I actually believe that we see outworkings of prophecy all the time. Uh, What I'm doing right now, I would pray, is empowered by the Spirit of God. It is speaking prophecy because prophecy in its core is just the speaking, the proclaiming of God's Word. And so we don't define prophecy by fortune-telling. Now, and I know that can be tricky because in the Old Testament, the prophets did a lot of things where they predicted the future. But you've got to remember, what was their role in that? It wasn't that they were the ones making the prediction. Their role was to speak a specific word that God gave them to share with the people. And that's how they would preface theirs. The Lord says to us, the Lord says to the people of, the Lord has spoken to me. But they're really just proclaiming what God has spoken to them. So now we have the complete revelation of the word of God. So as we speak the word of God, prophecy is happening. And, and you, if you go, well, that doesn't seem real supernatural, but hasn't, haven't we been in places before where someone's speaking the word or there's a message and you're just like, man, my wife called him because he, he knows stuff right now and he, she told on me or, you know, things like that where you just, that guy is clearly speaking to me. Or where someone's come to you and they've spoken a word from the scriptures that just seems absolutely appropriate for something that you're go- that's going on in your life. And they might not even know it, but you do. You know, man, God just spoke to me. So that, that happens all the time. Okay, so, so what about tongues in corporate worship? Well, tongues can be a little more complicated. Now, I, I grew up in the South, conservative Southern Baptist church. You didn't even see people lift their hands in worship. You didn't see any of that, Right. Uh, But my grandmother, who lived nearby, went to a super Pentecostal, the Candler House of Prayer was the name of that church. And man, like I told you guys before, it was like you would stretch before worship. I literally would see people running laps around the sanctuary while worship was going on, flopping around the ground. I mean, it was just, it was chaotic. So what does Paul say about how that should work out? Now, 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 there are passages we won't get to today that speak about when you're speaking in tongues, just you and the Lord. Actually, Paul does refer to that about you and God, that, that personal prayer language that some of you I know from experience talking with you, that you pray in that way. That, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about in the corporate gathers. Like Paul says, hey, when you come together here in the church, what about tongues? What are the stipulations on tongues and on prophecy and on these things that Paul puts into place? And so he does, he puts some stipulations. The first is this. He says, all right, two, at the most three people speaking and one at a time. Says it there in verse 33. Two are at most three and each one in turn or one person at a time. The, the idea is, is that these gifts, whether it be prophecy, whether it be tongues, are intended to be spoken in such a way that the body learn from these things, that we would all glean from them, that we would be blessed by them. And no matter what language you're speaking in or what prophecy you're bringing to the table, if everyone's speaking at the same time, no one understands anything, no one gains from anything, and it doesn't benefit the church. Now, now in my grandmother's church and in some ultra-Pentecostal churches that I've been a part of, I've seen this take place in worship especially and in different settings where there's just people all over the sanctuary speaking in tongues all at the same time and just kind of worshiping in that setting. But when I read the scriptures here, when I read the stipulations Paul's put in place, he said, look, the point of tongues in the corporate setting is to edify and build up the church together. So, So I want some boundaries put on this. Two people at the most three total and only one at a time. And the reason is not to stifle people as individuals, but to build up the church collectively. And so this is his, his first stipulation. The second one is that there must be interpretation. That if someone were to stand up and speak in a foreign tongue, Jeff, what would you do if right in the middle or during worship, someone stood up and spoke out in a tongue? Well, we would instantly say, all right, If the Spirit has spoken, then Paul says there must be interpretation because it's spoken in the congregational setting for the benefit of the entire church. So it'd be like, all right, so 
Is interpretation, we would take time to stop. Is, is interpretation coming? That's the idea. Now, this is important because understand something. In, in many charismatic circles, the emphasis can be on the actual speaking of tongues itself. And this is what goes on in Corinth. Remember, we talked about this several weeks ago that Corinth had an emphasis on um, the charisma or specifically the word used is the ecstasy. In other words, there's this human thing that is interacting with this spiritual godly thing in the same moment. And so for them, the spectacular part of someone speaking in tongues was when the word was said. But, but that's not the emphasis in Scripture. The emphasis on Scripture shouldn't be getting carried away with the fact that some foreign language was spoken. That's not the prize. The prize is, is if this is a word from God, then can we, what, what is God saying? The, the, the prize should be the understanding of it. And so if anyone speaks in a tongue, in a corporate setting, there must be interpretation there. If we don't hear the message, if we don't get to gain from what God is having to say, then what's the point of doing that? And so he says, only two or three, one at a time, and there must be interpretation. Well, what if the interpretation doesn't come? Well, Paul addresses that. He says, then if there's no interpretation, the speaker should be silent. If there's no interpretation, then you shut it down. There's no more. And, and this is something that's important to note. Notice something. Paul's saying, okay, only a couple at a time, one at a time, only a couple, two, three tops in the service, and if there's no interpretation, stop. That should tell us right away that in the corporate use of the gift of tongues, the speaker is in control. It's important to understand because I would see, for example, in my grandmother's church growing up, people would say things like, I just got carried away in the spirit and they would speak as if they had no control over the things that were being said. It's just the spirit took me and I just started, you know, yabba dabba doing or whatever and it just kind of happened and, and I had no control over that and that is not what Paul says. Paul says, first of all, only two or three, one at a time. It's, you're not carried away in some emotional out of control. In fact, he goes on to say that the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. There's a manner of order and control in the exercise of the tongues. And if the interpretation doesn't come, don't talk. Be silent. Stop speaking. And then finally, he puts this on it. He finally says then, test what is said. He says, when the prophecy is given, you, you should test what is said. So well, how, how do you do that? Well, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. And 1 John 4, 1, John the apostle says, beloved, do not believe, listen to this guys, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The, the one danger that can happen with a Pentecostal or ultra charismatic movement and does happen, it's probably happening on television right now, is that not everyone who claims to speak for God speaks for God. And we've got to watch out for that. That's how cults start. That's how Mormonism started. That's how cults begin. I received a special revelation from God and, and, and then someone speaks it out. Look, that doesn't happen in scriptures, even with the apostles. I mean, the scriptures tell us that Paul would speak, and then there was a group named the Bereans who would then go and test the very words of Paul against the scriptures to determine whether or not they're true. This is really important. This is really important. In the scriptures, we have the full, complete, final revelation of God. And so if anyone says, I have a special word, the Spirit has put this on my heart, and they speak it, it is our responsibility then to go, okay, let's weigh this against the Scriptures. Let's make sure that this is in line with the Scriptures, that it doesn't contradict what God has already said, because if it contradicts something that God's already said, and He said, I'm not adding to these words, as He does in Revelation, then someone's lying. And we know by default who that is. This is really important for us to do because the truth of the matter is, is as people, most of us are way too easily moved by charisma and by experience and by emotion and by feeling. And God knows this. The scriptures talk about the fact that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. 
And so God has put the scriptures in place to be in authority over us as a way of guiding and directing and giving us even checks. Like even the very things that I say, you should check things with scripture. You should go to the word yourself to see whether these things be true. Because it, number one, it's just good for you. It puts you in the scriptures and it's good for me as your pastor to know that I'm going to be checked. To know that I can't just go, oh, that sounds about right. That, that one of the things I love so much about this church, there are so many people in here that are students of the word. Is that I know for a fact, I cannot get up here and just wing it. Just go, ah, that sounds like, or I don't really like that. So I'm gonna change that and I'm just gonna, if I do that, I'll get hammered for that. And so it even forces me as a pastor to study even more, knowing that, look, I'm accountable for the words that I say. But, but that doesn't mean that you go, oh, good, he studies, then we'll just, no, you need to go to the words for yourself. You need to test the spirits. You need to weigh these things. And you got to understand that it's when people stopped doing that, that we got Mormonism, that we got Islam, that we got Jonestown, that we got every single cult that's out there. All of those things happened when people stopped reading the Bible for themselves. That's what happens. And you got to know, you got to be able to go, I smell a rat. Something's not right here. And you gotta be able to go to the scriptures and bust me on it if I'm out of line on those things. That's your responsibility as a congregation to do those, see the scriptures on your own. There's criteria that that has been uh, put out before, but just some questions that are helpful. When someone speaks a word to you, I think Sam shared the example when he taught, if you guys remember, someone came to John Piper once and told him they had had a vision and that the vision was that his wife's uh, third or fourth kid, whatever it was, was going to be a girl, I think, and she was going to die in childbirth. And it turned out to be the exact opposite of all of that. But it caused him grief as he was weighing these things out. Um, so, so the idea is, is we need to look at things. When someone comes to you, for example, and says, man, I have a word from the Lord for you. And then they speak that word. There's some things for you to consider in that. Number one, does this word glorify God? Because that's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus Christ. So anything that the Spirit says, if someone says, man, the Spirit's speaking to me, it should point us to Jesus ultimately. Number two, is this word in accord with Scripture? Does it contradict the Word of God? It can't do that. Number three, does this word build up the church? I mean, Paul even says in this passage, the purpose is to build one another up. The gifts of the Spirit are given for the edification of the church. So is it there to encourage and build me up? Number four, is it spoken in love? 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. And the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us, is love. So if someone's speaking in the Spirit to you, but they're not doing it in a loving way, that should be a check for us. Number five, does this speaker submit himself to the judgment of others? Or is he just a lone ranger just making stuff up as he goes? I'd want to know that. Is the speaker in control of himself? Or is it, as I said before, he's just getting carried away by things and just kind of speaking and it came out? Is this, is, is this someone that understands the words that he's saying? And then finally, is there fruit in the life of that person? Is the fruit of the Spirit even evident in the person? Because if they're saying, I'm speaking in the Spirit, then to know that that person's being led by the Spirit, there should be some evidence of joy and long-suffering and peace and self-control and all of that that Galatians 5 defines. We should be able to see some of that in the person speaking to us. If there's checks in those areas, if there's question marks or flat out no's in some of those areas, I would be really cautious before acting on some of those things. I would study the scriptures. I would seek other counsel or I would ignore it. It's just the reality of it. And why is that important? I mean, please understand here, D.A. Carson is one of the preeminent theologians of our day. He's brilliant. I only understand about 10% of every words that come out of his mouth. He's just crazy smart. But, but this is what he says. One of the more troubling aspects of the modern charismatic movement is the frequency by which prophecies are given as if they are direct quotes from God. The result is that some charismatic leaders and their followers treat the prophecies of their leaders as if they possess the unqualified authority of God himself. And this is how he plays that out. 
So you get someone who speaks and says, this is the word of God and speaks it as if he is God himself saying that thing. It's outside of check. It's spoken with great authority. And it's really easy, Carson goes on to say, to turn that into fundraising. And so then you get someone on TV and we have lots of them that says, this is the word. God has given me a vision for a jet airplane and a giant building. And God has called me to tell you that you have a role in building. And then they could even maybe go back to Exodus and go, look, see how when they built the temple and they built the tabernacle, the people brought their gifts. And God has told me that's what you're supposed to do. And it happens all the time. And people give. And, and people give too much. People go broke. People are taken advantage of. People are ripped off. And then people are given promises like your faith. It's, it's an act of faith and God's gonna bless you because of it. And you just see how it all just snowballs. And in the end, what happens is if it's not a word of God, then these people oftentimes are left completely disillusioned. Their faith devastated because of the way things happened. All because someone's not reading their Bible. It's just as simple as that. There's a flat out practical application and benefit to just reading and studying the word of God so that when someone speaks, you have discernment, which is, by the way, another one of the movements of the Holy Spirit itself. If someone says, I have the gift of prophecy and God has told me this, then you should go right then and pray for the gift of discernment so you can tell. Because like John himself says it, don't believe all the spirits. Not everyone who claims to speak for God speaks for God. I mean, Satan himself, what does the scripture say? Masquerades as what? An angel of light. That's where cults start. And if people would simply just submit themselves to the scriptures, all of that could end. And so he closes by saying, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, to not forbid speaking in tongues, verse 39 and 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So Paul gives this word with regards to worship. The other thing Paul gives us in this passage is a word concerning women. And, oh, hang on just one second. Um, I totally forgot something. This is really, really important to the text that we're studying right now. So I don't want to leave you guys hanging and skip this and be properly prepared for the speaking of the word. This will only take a second, but I want to take every precaution to make sure that we're safe. And with this passage coming up... <clears throat> Okay. <clears throat> it's the breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. I think I got those messed up. No. No. This is, uh, now comes what I like to refer to as biblical dynamite. Some of you guys are trying to take pictures. Put that away. It's going to show up on Instagram. Some of you right now are like, I'm discernment's telling me this guy's not speaking from God already because God would never tell a guy to do anything that's stupid. Maybe he didn't, but this next passage, all jokes aside, is biblical dynamite. This passage has been very problematic for women. It's been very problematic for men who expound these texts. It's been very problematic for the men who go home with the women who hear these words and get into conversations later on. It's a very problematic text. But, but we don't avoid the scriptures. We don't make apologies for the scriptures. God is in authority. He writes these things for our own good, whether we like them or understand them or not. Amen, Heritage? Um, but we also want to understand them because we can trust God's heart. We know that God's plans for us are good. We know he loves us. And so we want to understand these things. But, but even more than that, I'm going to actually skip to the warning part first. Because I think it bids us understanding. He says, look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. When Paul wrote this passage, he was fully aware that he was speaking under the authority of the Spirit 
And that what he was speaking was not an option, not a suggestion, not an idea, but a command of the Lord. And he even warns us, he says there, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized, that we don't have the freedom within the church to pick and choose the things of God's word that we want to honor, ignore other things, and then feel like we're on safe ground, we're under safe covering, that we're walking in according to God's word. He says, no, 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 no. This is God's word. This needs to be understood. And there's some that would read this passage, particularly concerning women here. There are so many people that will say things like, look, I'm not a Christian and I reject Christianity because I don't like that. That would be such, such a foolish mistake. And I say that with, with all respect, honestly. To throw all of these things away, the wonderful miracle of salvation and grace, the sacrifice that our Savior paid on our behalf, all of these things, to throw those things away over such small things, I would say, no, 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 no. Go to the cross first. Go to what Christ has done for you. Recognize who he is. The scriptures say, he said, you'll know that I'm God. The people pressed him. How do we know that you're really God? He said, okay, I'm gonna tear down this temple and in three days, I'm gonna raise it up again. And he was speaking with regards to the resurrection. And so if Jesus is God, if he is Lord, the omnipotent, the uh, um, just knows everything, knows all the best past, future, knows what's best for us. He has plans for us there. If he is really that God, then we can trust him with these things. And frankly, we owe him the respect to submitting to God's word, whether we understand exactly what it is or not. Where we can get in trouble is when we take passages like this and we make them the center. This passage is not the center of who we are as a church. There, there are people that are brothers and sisters that I dearly love in this valley that believe differently than me in these things, that have a different method of biblical interpretation or, or, or might be the case where they just go, I just don't like it, I just don't wanna deal with that. If we make this the center, it draws those hard dividing lines that cause us to not be able to walk in fellowship with brothers regardless of whether we agree or not in those things. So, so I have strong convictions on these things. And, and we address them as we go through the scriptures, but we don't make these our platform that we just hammer, hammer. Our platform, like we said last week, there's one message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our center. But, but that should not take away from the importance and understanding that this is the truth of God's word here. Equally true, Paul says, the command of the Lord. Amen? And there's been so much ink spilled and so much division caused by this text. It's just unfortunate. But, but this, this is the reality of it. Look what he says, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Okay, so here's a couple of things we need to understand from the very beginning before we go any further with this. Some foundational things you have to have in place. Number one, it can't mean what it seems to mean. He said, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, does that mean, he's talking about when the people gather together. So does that mean from now on, all women in church silent? You don't get to say a word. You just come in, keep your mouths closed, walk out. If you have any questions, wait till you get home, ask your husband. Is that really what that's saying? Well, it, it can't be because in chapter 11, he speaks about with praise about the fact that women are prophesying in church. That, that's teaching. That's speaking out a word of God or, or that people are praying in church. So in one place, he's saying they're speaking out the word of God. And in another place, he said they're praying in church. And then over here, he's saying it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, it can't be both. We also know that God's word does not contradict itself. So there must be something here that helps us understand this passage because it would seem to be a contradiction. And it's important that you guys know this contradiction because this is one that people will throw out at you. This is one that our culture in particular goes, this is why Christianity's stupid. And they'll make it a human rights issue. And they'll point to the fact that in reality, these things can feel wrong. It can feel, oh, it just feels improper. I don't understand why this is in here. It's important then that we do understand what's here. Not that we wanna go and make this the center of who we are, but it's important to understand. 
So, so we need to know it can't mean what it seems like it means because chapter 11 is part of the same le- letter that says women are prophesying and praying in church. It also, we need to remember that God is a God of created order. This is how the passage closes. All things should be done decently and in order. And in everything God does, there's purpose his created order, his order in the church, his order in the home. There is a plan and a purpose behind everything that he does. And so I want you to track with me for just a second and consider something. The Bible teaches from the very beginning that there are differences between men and women and that those differences are not accidental, that they are intentional and that they're good. There are people out there that will say, look, the gender war and the differences between men and women are a result of the fall. And they'll point to the curse in Genesis chapter three. But that, that's not accurate because the Bible teaches in Genesis one, in Genesis two, God creates Adam and Eve equal, equal. Nowhere, everyone hear this, nowhere in scripture are you will never find anywhere in scripture does it say that women are not equal with men. It does not exist. So you can't carry this to some extreme and make it some sort of worth value system. That's not there. The scriptures say that we are created, our value is in the fact that we are created in the image of God. Male and female created he him. In other words, I created them the same. Their value is in their fact that they are image bearers of God. That's where the value part comes from. But he absolutely created us different because think of it. Adam, it says, is incomplete. Before Eve was created, Adam was incomplete. He lacked a partner. He was aware of it. God knew it. In fact, God set Adam up so that he would become aware of it by bringing all these animals by. So they they all have a partner. They all have that completion. I, I don't have that. God was like, well done, Adam. You notice. Now take a nap. All that thinking's hard on you. You just take a nap. that's what he does, right? And so he creates Eve and he brings Eve to Adam and he refers to her as Adam's helper. This is not a derogatory passage. It's not a derogatory word. In the Psalms, God is referred to as our helper. Okay, it is not derogatory. But think of it like this. If Adam's complete and Eve is the one who comes in as his helper, his completer in that way, doesn't that mean by default that there are things Adam lacks that Eve is just plain better at? That there's gonna be things that Adam's not gifted to do that Eve is. So to translate the role differences here as one being more valuable or better than the other one, that is a false dichotomy that is not anywhere where the scriptures teach. And keep in mind, those differences exist. Uh, Adam's lacking, Eve coming in, being the completion to that. Those differences exist before the fall. And when God creates them, he says what? It is good. The differences are good. God has created us different intentionally and on purpose, and it's good. He does all things well, the scriptures say. Now, the problem is, is that in our world today, we don't see it quite that way. Now, there's a book, uh, there's a gal named uh, Carol Gilligan, and she wrote a book called A Different Voice. And it's widely considered the most respected um, resource out there with regard to gender differences and gender roles, both by secular and uh, Christian people. There's a lot of really helpful things that she says in there. And she says something that's really interesting. Track with me on this. She says that women, by and large, view themselves as maturing as they move towards interdependence. Women mature, she says, as they move towards interdependence. So a woman finds more and more value as she grows through life in her interdependence, her relationships with children, relationships with family, relationships with friends. That's why women love to get together and talk. This is her writings, not mine. And, and, and so she talks about that. Women are designed in such a way that they view maturity as a move towards interdependence. Men, on the other hand, she writes, find themselves as maturing, growing, becoming men as we move towards independence that we can do stuff. I can take care of things. I don't need anyone's help. I got this. That that is the design, that is kind of the natural bent in men. And there's good reason for those things. There's good results and outworkings for those things. But here's what happens. God creates us different before the fall and then sin comes in and sin does judo on our differences. And this is what I mean by that. If you ever watch judo or MMA, the judo people, 
they're usually small. They're not the biggest guy, they're not the strongest guy. And when some dude comes charging at a judo guy, for example, they don't turn and meet that force by pushing back to try to win. What they do is they use the momentum of the person coming at them to their advantage. They just transfer the momentum and the guy kind of goes blowing by and lands on the ground and he wins. Well, this is sort of what sin can do with our differences. Rather than saying, this is your, this is your role, I'm going to do the exact opposite with that. A lot of times what happens is we have these God-given differences that God has designed, but then sin comes in and exacerbates them. And so here's what ends up happening. Paul goes, or excuse me, uh, Moses writes in the book of Genesis, it goes on and it says that in Genesis 3, when the curse comes, it says, your desire will be toward your husband, but he will lord it over you. And so the feminists will talk about, and they're right about this. The feminists will talk about the fact that it is, it is wrong for a woman to get into a mentality where she says, I have to have a husband. I'm not complete until I have a husband. I need a husband. I'm nothing if I don't have that relationship. And feminists will hammer women about that and say, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. And listen, they're right. We should only find our worth in who? God. Not in husbands not in friends, not in children. Feminists are right about that. Men, on the other hand, what happens with them? Sin comes into the picture. They've got this natural bent towards being independent. Well, that independent gets a little bit snowballed, if you will, and it becomes bullying. It becomes lack of accountability. Nobody tells me what to do. It becomes abusive. And so here's, where, here's the reality of this. Our culture today tells us we're not allowed to talk about differences. We don't talk about differences of skin color. We don't talk about differences in gender. We ignore those differences. We don't talk about that stuff. But the reason that our culture tells us to do that is because we have seen sin exacerbate those differences and pollute them and abuse one another through those things. But God designed us differently and that's good. That is not an accident. He did not make Adam and Eve and then stand back and go, oh, whoops, that's gonna be interesting. That is not what God did. So God has created us differently with different advantages, different strengths. And so if he's created us in that way, if we have those kinds of differences, it would make sense that there are certain roles that we are designed to operate in, that there's going to be certain things that women are going to do better than men, and that's okay. And there's going to be certain things that men are going to do that are better than women. And yes, we have seen this absolutely abused throughout the years, but that doesn't make it wrong in its design. It means we're wrong. It means the way that we've handled these things throughout the years is wrong. It means that we have sinned and we need to repent before God and return back to his intended design. And that in the things that we go, but this just doesn't make sense. I don't understand about those things. Then we need to trust them. We need to say, I will put my faith in you, God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you to lead me. My wife and I, we are absolutely, totally equal. If anything, I would say with all honesty that she's better than me. There's been so many times, I mean, it's really easy for me up here to look like the spiritual guy as the pastor of the church, but if you had any idea how many times in our marriage that my wife has been the spiritual anchor for me, the times that I wanted to go off in independence and do my thing, forget all this, I'll do this, and my wife goes, honey, we should think about that. We are completely equal, but we're very different. We're very different. But, but that's what makes it work. That our household is more complete because we understand those differences. And, and let me even say this because I've heard a million times, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, I've heard this a million times too. And, and what I've often heard is that they'll say um, that, that, look, we're equal, we're equal, but when a really hard decision comes, the responsibility for that decision falls on the man to just do it. If you don't agree, the responsibility is put on the man. He just makes the decision and she has to roll with it. Okay, there, there's a sense where that's right. But, but doesn't the scripture say to men that we die for the sake of our wives? So I would say, be very careful what decisions you go, I disagree with you on this, I'm gonna make my choice. What are your motives in that choice? Because I'll tell you right now, we've been married almost 18 years now. Is that right, 18? It is, okay, just making sure. I'm already gonna be in trouble for a lot of this. I don't wanna have it at home too. So just wanna make sure. But I can only think of one time in the history of our marriage where we had a major decision and we completely disagreed on it. It wasn't all that long ago. 
and, and I won't lie, it was a little heated. And, and I just say, honey, listen, I love you with all my heart. And I have never gone against you in this. But in this particular decision that I've believed with all my heart and it, it played out to be absolutely right, that the very safety of our family depends on this decision. And so I love you, but I'm doing this anyway. That's happened once in 18 years. One time. And the, the reason that falls on us, men, is because scripturally, the Bible tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church? There was a problem. It wasn't his fault, but he made it his responsibility. And he brought himself into our situation and took responsibility for the issue and dealt with that problem in love for our benefit. So when you're in a situation, men, with your wives where you disagree and you say, well, I guess the responsibility's on me. Yes, the responsibility's on you to be Christ, if you will, in that situation and to say, how do I serve my wife best in this particular situation? And a lot of times, us men, let's face it, we're pretty prideful, pretty stubborn. We lean towards independence. And so a lot of times, if we take the time to stop and really think about that, we'll realize hey, that might be kind of selfish. Maybe I don't wanna do that. That's been my experience. We're different, but God has made us that way intentionally. One does not trump authority left and right all over the other person. And the belief that believing this passage and, and taking the things of God with regards to roles and with regards to gender roles will then put us in a position, will put you ladies in a position where you have no authority, where you're just stomped on, where you're walked all over. The sad reality is, is that through a lot of history, that has absolutely been the case but it's not God's intention. God's intention is that there would be a literal equal but different roles within the marriage. And that same thing then translates into the church because God uses both the church and marriage as his picture for the world of the gospel. So that would mean that the way things work in our home should also be to some degree the way things work in the church. It would just stand to reason that that's the case. Okay, Jeff, that's great. You said all this stuff, but let's go back to women don't talk in church. How are you gonna work this one out? It's really pretty simple. What have I told you guys before? What's the first three rules in real estate? Location, location, location. What's the first three rules of biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. What's the context of what Paul is saying here? He's saying, hey, when someone claims to speak the word of God or the prophecy of God or in tongues, when someone speaks those things, test the spirits. Test the word that's said. Make sure it is in line with the word of God. And what he's saying to women, this actually is not your role. This is a role reserved for the elders, the, the pastors in the church. He specifically is saying that role of judging the things that are said within the confines of, it doesn't mean you don't get to go home and go, I don't understand what Jeff was saying there. It doesn't mean that at all. But in the context of the corporate gathering right there, God has reserved specific roles of leadership spiritually for men in that area. That's the responsibility. That's what the text says. There's really no other way around it. First Timothy 2 goes on to say as well, not to permit women to teach, exercise authority over men, that there are specific roles. Women, you guys, you all but run our church. I just wanna be honest with that, right? I mean, in the children's ministry, outreach, all these things, the vast majority of the work in this church and in every church, honestly, is always done more by women than it is men, to our shame. That's the reality of it. There are only two places in the scriptures where women are not allowed to serve or operate, and that is in the place of elder and pastor. We have women that serve in the role of deacon. We have women who serve in the children's ministry. We have women who teach our kids. We have women who do the Bible studies. We have women serving in every other area of the church except for those two. The shame is not, it does say, if, if a woman takes that role, it says it's a shame to be in that, but can I contextualize this for our day and age right here, if I may? Here, here's the shameful thing in my belief with regards to these kinds of things. Because the question is this. Okay, so let's say you're in the culture, you're out in the world, you're talking about this, and someone brings this text up to you and you just go, well, this is what it believes. It, it's, not, it's still not gonna sit real well with a lot of people, right? I mean, let me ask you this. If that's true, which we believe absolutely it is, let me ask you this then. Is it fair? Is that fair? So you can say it, is it fair? No, it's not fair. It's not fair. 
That doesn't make it wrong. Here's what you need to understand. Biblically, the relationship between Jesus and the church should parallel the relationship between men and women. So what's the relationship with Jesus and the church? The scripture says in Philippians that Jesus was totally equal with who? God. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves. Church gathering, have this mind among yourselves. Think like this, Paul says. Who, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus Christ was completely equal with God, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. That's the relationship within the church. That's what happens. Men and women are completely equal, but they have specific callings. Women are called to empty themselves, if you will, of that same thing, not to grasp and fight for that equality so much as to be humble, to support your husbands, to submit the dirty word these days in that same way. But men, that passage is to us too, isn't it? He's speaking to the whole church. He says, think like this. He doesn't just go, hey, ladies, this is how it's gonna roll. Dudes, you can just take a nap. That's not what he says. He says to the church, this is your role. So what are men's role in that? Men's role is, okay, if I'm considered to be the head of the household or the spiritual leader in the church, my role is to do what? To manifest Jesus Christ. Who did what? Who emptied himself of authority for the benefit of others, took responsibility for their difficulties, for their situations, and served them. Because I... There are people who take this text and use it to their advantage, and that is absolutely sinful. To take a text like this to use for your advantage is wrong. You take a text like this and you use it for their advantage. It is a call to serve, and here is the shame. Here's the shame. Somewhere along the line in our culture, men stopped being the spiritual leaders, the pastors, if you will, in their households. We... we, we, we said, okay, we'll let pastors do that and we pay them to do that. But my job is to go make money. So I'll let the pastors raise my kids spiritually. I'm gonna just work for the bottom line for the household and I'm not gonna lead like that. And so you know what happened? Is that for much of our modern history, all the Bible studies are women. All the books are bought by women. I mean, a majority. And so women are growing in the knowledge and understanding of the scriptures and the it's unbelievable how many men in the church have an absolute vacuum of knowledge concerning the things of the Lord. And, and so the sad thing is, is the scripture says here that a, that a wife should be able to go home and talk with her husband and say, honey, what do you think about this? But in too many households, she can't do that because he doesn't know nothing. Isn't that sad? That's the reality of it. I, I've, I've seen so, I've watched my father in the Baptist church for years shake his head and amen at texts like this and do nothing at home. Not pray a bit. Ne I never saw him reading the Bible. Never saw him reading a book aside from the Bible. Never saw, I don't remember any of those kind of things, but I can remember him getting worked up about things like women in position of authority in other churches and stuff like that. Shame on him for that. Shame on him for that. Men, there's a lot of places where women have moved into steps and roles of leadership in the church because nobody else was there doing it. And that is on us. It is our responsibility to be students of the word. I am not the pastor of your family. I'm the pastor of this church. You are the pastor of your family. Jeremy, the children's pastors, all those, they are not the ones charged with the responsibility of teaching your children about the Bible. You are. Your children should be coming to church and saying, dad taught me that this week. That's God's design. God's intended design is that the fathers would shepherd their households. In the church gatherings, we come together and we're just worshiping together just being on, just blown away by the goodness of God as he's working and sharing with one another, speaking prophecies with one another. Man, look what the Lord showed me this week. Man, that's awesome because I was in here and the Lord showed me this and sharing with one another and the sad reality of this, and you know I love you guys, but I'm gonna be hard on you here. We share sports stories and fishing pictures, not scripture. We, we share what we saw on TV 
or, or work accomplishments, not accountability. So my cha- this, this text that we're reading is about roles of men and women. And, and being a man, I'll let the ladies' ministry work with the ladies on that. But right here, I'm going to put, as I always do, the reality of the fact, is this fair? No, it's not fair because there's a lot of women that are left hanging because of passages like this. It dare not be any of us in this place who have heard the word of God today. Amen, men? There, there's a time coming. We're going to schedule it really soon where we're gonna have a men's gathering on a Saturday or something like that. And we're gonna talk about this. I, I had a, a group over at my house not all that long ago and, and we did a little marriage seminar with a group of people and we were talking about this very thing about being pastor dad in the family and about leading devotions and praying with your family and all those kinds of things. There was like 18 people or so in the room. I said, hey, just out of curiosity, you guys that are in here, how many of you guys are actually right now in a season where you're like, man, we're just thriving in this area. Man, I'm, I'm leading my family. I'm preaching the word to them. I'm teaching this. We're praying together, all this kind of stuff. One hand went up in the room, only one. But think about this then, as we talked about that. I said, let me, let me ask another question. Out of all of you, men and women in this room, how many of you saw growing up what that looked like out of your dad? Like your dad was leading the family. Your dad was praying for your family. Your dad was leading the household. How many of you had that? One person raised their hand. And you know who it was? The guy who's doing it now. So the reality is somewhere along the line, men, we lost our ability to look back at an example of what does it look like to lead our families in the church. And I know there's a sense where I'm leaving you hanging sort of on this sermon. Lead your families. What does it look like? Tell you later. But, but I'll tell you this, man, we need to be in prayer now. The, very, the one thing we can do for sure is start wearing out the knees of our jeans because we're on our knees praying, God, how do, how do you want me to lead my family? How, how do you want me to lead my children? Where are my kids gonna be? Man, my, my daughter, my mom just got her for Christmas. I was mad, but got her a, a, a tablet. Samsung Galaxy, she's 10. So I'm not ready for that. My daughter, 10 years old, is in the technology world. I was not okay with that. But I got teary-eyed thinking about the fact that let's say she moves out at 18 years old, that my time with her is already half over. And there's so much more I want to teach her. There's so much more I need to do that I'm responsible to do with my kids. And just like that, it's gone. You people that are empty nesters, amen? It's like that. So men, I'm calling you. Say, this is a cop-out. He doesn't want to get in trouble with the ladies. Look, I told you I was a coward to begin with, so don't, don't throw that back on me. But men, I am calling you. The women in your households and in this church desperately want to see husbands praying and reading their Bibles and leading their families. They desperately want it. And, and young men... Let me tell you, I cannot tell you how many times I have talked to young women in this valley that say, there's no one in this valley worth marrying. And I go, yep. It's true. There is a lacking in leadership and in young men who desperately want God's will for them, who are, who are looking and training, if you will, to be the pastor of their household now telling you, you guys, just, just pure odds alone. You get that down, you've got a wide fertile field available for you. I'm just saying. Maybe fertile is a bad word, but I'm just saying, it's there. We'll start a website. Christian Mingle. HeritageMingle.com. No. Is it fair? No. The scriptures are not fair, but you know what they are? They're good. They're good. God's ways are not our ways, but they're good. They're good. And so I, I challenge you. Men, if, you're, if you are, if you're like, look, okay, this is God's call in my life. I gotta figure this out. I don't, I don't even know where to start. Get a hold of us. Call us. But you start by reading your Bible and by praying for your family. That's where you start. And I'm actually pretty convinced that God will take you pretty far even just with that. Amen? And ladies, for those of you that you go, man, this is, I, I, I live this out, but it's not easy. And the culture around me doesn't seem to like that, I know. And I just wanna say, I, I, by the grace of God, applaud you in that and encourage you in that. Um, your reward in heaven will be mighty big because of that. Um, but I also applaud you for not allowing the culture to dictate the scriptures for you in your life. Trust God, let God work those things out. Amen? 
We were gonna close in worship, but I'm, I'm gonna just end us on this moment. Will you guys stand with me? <clears throat> Talked on that longer than I meant to. Um, but listen, hey, test the spirits. Go home, get in the word. See if that's right. Read Deuteronomy 6, I think it is. Go read the scriptures. Read about the roles of the family. Read about that stuff and test the spirits. Men, test me on this. And if I'm wrong, come talk to me. But, but know this, God will bless you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the unrighteous. He, he will be like a tree planted by rivers of living water, producing his fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither and everything he does will prosper. But somewhere along the line in our culture, we gave up on the word of God to chase the prosperity and we got the cart before the horse. Come back, men. Come back to the word of God and allow him to speak to you. Amen? God, I pray your blessing on our time, Lord. I pray, God, that if I've said anything that is not in accordance with your scripture, may it be forgotten before they get to the cars. But God, I do believe this is in accordance with your word, and I believe these are important calls to our generation and to our time. So I pray, Lord, that you would allow by your spirit these things to be worked out in our lives. I pray you would call men to honest repentance with their families. I pray, God, that you would create more and more praying men. I pray, God, you would bless women who may even wrestle with difficult passages such as this. But I pray, God, that you would grow your body here at Heritage. Because the end result, as you say, Lord, you are a God of order and you desire to build up your church. So may you have your way with us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night. God bless.